<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment, and welcome to an eerie episode of Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. So in case you haven't figured it out, it is spooky season. It is Rocktober, and there is no freakier era than the 1980s. I'm talking about the decadent decade that brought us Thriller, Ghostbusters, Bella Lugosi's Dead, Dead Man's Party, and many, many other haunted Halloween jams. Later on in this episode, I will be welcoming the so talented, it's scary electronic artists and Fright Night superfans MNDR and Bright Light, Bright Light to discuss their favorite gravest hits. But first, we're really getting the Dead Man's Party started with the queen of Halloween, the mistress, the myth, the legend, the one and only Elvira. All right, well, let's get started. So obviously we're here because you are the queen of Halloween, Elvira. I love your autobiography, Yours Cruelly, Elvira. It just came out in paperback. And yeah. I think it's fascinating because there's a lot of rock and roll stories in this. Uh, in this, you were, You're not just the queen of Halloween. You're the queen of rock and roll as well. I, I would, you know, love to be that. I mean, I really, I think that was my favorite part of writing the book, honestly, was writing all about the rock and roll stuff. And I don't think people realize how much, how into it I always was, you know? And, and I mean, I just can't live without music. That's it's, amazing. It's so weird we're doing this interview today because I've been on this 80s kick lately, just listening to 80s music, like the new wave music, you know? And uh, God, I've just been playing that all day, every day for the last That's week. That's amazing. So obviously in the book, you know, well before the 80s, you were, you know, you were uh, working for Don Kirshner's rock concert. You were hanging out with Elvis. You were a Vegas showgirl. You were a go-go dancer for The Who and Jimi <laughs> Hendrix, you know, but obviously we're here. It's Rocktober. We're here to talk about spooky music, but I'm curious about what 80s stuff you've been listening to lately. Well, God, I've just been like blasting it. It's so weird. I've been mostly Christy Hine and the Pretenders, but like the Go-Go's, Oh my God, just, I don't know, just like like listening to 80 stations on Pandora and on uh, Spotify and just listening to everybody, Hendrix, uh, Led Zeppelin, everybody you can think of. But in particular, there were so many great women artists, you know, Susie Sue, mm -hmm. Susie and the Banshees. And, and I mean, Chrissy Hine, I just think she's one of the all-time female rock artists ever. I think she is amazing. Her music stands up so well. I mean, anybody out there who has not listened to The Pretenders, you better get <laughs> on down to wherever you get Pretenders music and listen to it now. 
Absolutely. I, uh, I'm curious though, you mentioned the Go-Go's. I have read that at one time you volunteered to be their manager. Is that true? <laughs> More like begged to be their manager. It was so funny. It was my, my best friend at the time, Donna, we're still great friends. And, um, uh, Donna Ski, I mentioned her in the beginning of the book and she and I both worked at Don Kirshner's rock concert together. So we heard about this little all girl band and we went down to, I think we saw them at Starwood in Hollywood and we decided with no experience whatsoever that we could manage them. So we went up and like really tried talking them into letting us be their managers. But thank God they had some brains as well as talent. And they said no. <laughs> well, you obviously had some brains and talent, too, because you created this whole persona in the 80s. That was, you know, when Elvira was everywhere. And I want to talk about you know, sort of where Elvira, the character, your character intersects with music in the 80s, because one thing I learned from your book is I'd love you to talk about the fact that the original idea in probably the biggest Halloween song of all time, and certainly the biggest Halloween song of the 80s, Michael Jackson's Thriller, mm -hmm. before it was Vincent Price, it was supposed to be you doing the spoken part, right? Yes, yes. And I, I didn't know that until someone sent me an article and the, the man who wrote Thriller Apparently, he just wrote it like in 10 minutes in the back of a car or something. He passed away and I had quotes from him saying, I originally wanted Elvira to record that part. But Vincent Price's wife, Coral Brown, was good friends with Quincy Jones's wife. They were like best buddies. And she talked Quincy Jones's wife into getting Vincent Price, her husband. So you know, I, I mean, I freaking love Vincent Price more than, you know, anything in the world. So the fact that he got it is is OK with me. If I'm going to be beat out by somebody, please let it be Vincent Price. You guys were friends, right? Yeah, we were. We were. We got to be friends towards the end of his life. He came on my lowly little local television show a couple of times and he was freaking awesome. So I was meeting my childhood idol when he did that. And then, because we're both in the spooky world, spooky business, we would run into each other at every single, oh my God, you know, every kind of award show and benefit and movie opening, all in, you know, horror related. So we got to be friends, you know, but we were forced to be. Um, but, but I loved him and I think he really liked me. And then we, um, we actually corresponded by letters. Remember letters? I do. That's where you got paper and you wrote on it with a pen. So I had many letters from him and many letters I sent to him. And someone told me they were in the somewhere in the Smithsonian Institute. I don't know. That's I don't where know. they belong. Somebody told me. That's where yeah. Have you ever recited the thriller and you know the funk of 30,000 years or whatever it says. <laughs> I have recited it when I was doing a not scary farm show. Um we did thriller one year. So oh I, was I I can't remember a word of it now. So please don't ask me because I can't remember even what I did last night. Well, but, but yes, I've sung Thriller. I've recorded that part as Vincent, uh, but for my live show, which was super fun to do. Well, since we're talking about great Halloween moments and great Elvira moments of the 1980s, I very fondly remember your MTV Halloween special from 1984. It actually begins, I believe, with a parody intro that says this special 
uh, does not mean I believe in the occult the way I like the Michael Jackson <laughs> music video. You know, I don't know if right. you believe in the occult, but I want to talk about that special because like, you know, you curated a lot of the music videos in it. And I've sort of looked them up and I'm I'm curious about some of them. Uh, I'll just recite some of them. The God, Jackson. Remember. Well, I'm going to just sort of say them and you can tell me you can react. Do you have any thoughts on the Jackson's torture? That's definitely a moment in time. Do you remember that music? Wow. God, no, I don't. (laughs) I'll just recite them. Horrifying. It was, well, it was horrifying in the sense that like, I don't know how it got made because it was like, it was like the one where they had to use the wax dummy because Michael Jackson didn't show up or whatever. Oh well, my God. Let me just recite them and you can tell me if, if any of these bring to mind any memories. So there was that, the Jackson's torture. There was the specials, Ghost Town, Devo, Peekaboo, two Nina Hagen videos, speaking of badass women. Herman was his oh. name in New York, New York. David Bowie looked back at anger. I think that's one where he's got like the weird messed up face and he's like a painter going insane, like Vincent Van Gogh. Right. Bauhaus, Bella Gossi's dead. Always a classic. Oh, that's a super classic. That's on my, that's probably top of my list. Utopia, yeah. Feet Don't Fail Me Now, which is Todd Rundgren and his bandmates dressed as bugs. Uh, Thomas Dolby, okay. Hyperactive. And then Dance It With Myself by Billy Idol, which I think is interesting because I only just recently found out from Steve Stevens that that video was directed by Toby Hooper, who directed uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It has props oh. from that. And Seriously? it's the only video Toby Hooper ever did. Music video. Wow, and- you're kidding. I had no idea. That, that is so weird. You know, I some of those were friends of mine. And so I picked their videos. Like Todd Rundgren is a good friend for many years. Who else on there? Well, Devo. I was friends with those guys back in the day for a long time. Yeah, so I tried to stick some of my friends in there. Who else I've got? Who all you mentioned? But I tried to get my friends in on this on this MTV special. Oh, Nina Hagen. Nina Hagen was a good friend, and I haven't mm. seen her in years now. But I really made a big pitch for getting her songs on there, especially New York, New York. My God, one of my favorite all time songs and videos. I just love her. So, yeah, I I sort of forced my way into some of my, you know, videos to just, uh, you know, to get my friends some airplay. Well, you were doing the Lord's work or maybe the devil's uh-huh. work. Because, exactly. Both. Because Nina Hagen didn't get, might have been one of the few times Nina Hagen got on MTV, thanks to you. Yeah, I, you know, I, I remember really, really fighting for getting her on because she wasn't really among their list of uh, people that they, you know, okayed. So I, it was uh, it was a real battle to get her, her videos on, but she's so brilliant. I love her. Well, I want to ask you, you know, uh, as I was mentioning before, you have led a really rock and roll lifestyle even before you were Elvira. And maybe people will find that out from your book, Yours Cruelly, but didn't know that before. But you also were a singer yourself and you had one very at least one very iconic Halloween theme music video in the 80s called Trick or Treat. I believe it was part of your special on MTV. It's very synth pop. I just watched it again. It's very like dark wave. Can you tell me about this song? Who wrote it? The video. The video is very like eerie and, and you know, very 80s in the best possible way. Yeah, that, that was the very first song I ever did as Elvira uh, for my local TV show, Movie Macabre, that was still at that point local. And John Paragon, my writing partner, was a really good musician, and he wrote the song and the lyrics. 
I don't think his best work is reflected in this song. <laughs> um, but he wrote it. And the really funny thing that, that people don't know about it is I produced it in my house, in my bathroom. And we, we call it Elvira and the Vitones. And the Vitones are actually John Paragon and Paul Rubens, Pee Wee Herman. And they, those guys stood in the bathtub with the shower curtain closed while I stood on the other side singing my part. And my ex-husband produced it there on his little home recorder. Yeah, so that's a, a, a little fact that not many people know. That vo- the background voice is actually Pee Wee and, um, and John Paragon, who played also, you know, known as playing Jombie the Genie in Pee Wee's Playhouse. And John was a big, he helped you, I don't know, is it fair to say he helped you create the Elvira character or he sort of had a big No, absolutely, part? absolutely. I, I would definitely say he helped create it. He his voice, he and I wrote all of our material together. And he was just a freaking brilliant comedian. He passed away, unfortunately, a year ago. He just gave it this vibe. I mean, that I don't know. I, I wouldn't be the same character without John having worked with me. I know that. And I've spent many years looking for somebody who can capture that voice that John had, you know. And let me tell you, I don't think there's anybody out there that could really do it do him justice but yeah. I, I found some good writers but nobody was quite as crazy and wild and funny as John what musicians when you and John were coming up with the Elvira look because I know there were different kind of archetypes for the Elvira look before you settled on the Elvira we all know and love there were like speaking of strong women there were a lot of kind of female musicians or pop stars that sort of influenced your aesthetic right well, I, you know, I was so into, as I said, so into the 80s music then, and all the girls that were coming out, like I said, Susie Sue and Chrissy Hind and everyone. So we wanted to have a, you know, the classic kind of vampirous look, but with a little 80s flair thrown in, some little leather and studs, you know, on my wrists and um, uh, little touches like that to make it a little more 80s looking so it would be contemporary at the time you know I think that was a really good thing I mean the influence of that was great I I think metal bands like started really really loving me I I was opening like introducing all these bands like Rob Zombie was in White Zombie then and, and Motley Crue and oh my god all these different bands I would just show up and and intro them so I think that little Leather and studs, the metal look, you know, gave the character that little extra bit of crossover into rock and metal. Absolutely. I'm looking at the cover of the book right now and looking at the eyeliner. That's definitely a Susie Sue look. Strong mm-hmm. eyebrow. And I the bangs are very Chrissy Hind, actually. I completely see what you were they going are. for. That choppy thing. There you go. Well, don't let them know that, you know. <laughs> okay. I'm sure they would be completely honored. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't sue, I think. I'm pretty sure they'd be completely honored. Well, I, I know I know Chrissy Hine pretty well. I don't know Susie Sue, but I'm a huge admirer. When you uh, were hanging out in the 80s, and what other like kind of musicians were big fans of you who were inviting you to collaborate or introduce them or go on the road with them? I'm sure you were rubbing elbows with all of the all of the rock stars. Um, yeah, I was. I was uh, Billy Idol. Funny you brought brought him up. I was hanging out with him a little bit. Guns and Roses, Axl Rose who back then was so adorable and hot uh, just <laughs> after they'd come out. And yeah, there were just all these bands that were inviting me to see their shows and going backstage or introducing them. And especially like going to the Grammys, you know, 
I went one year with Alice Cooper as my date. It was so fun. Had the best time ever um, because we were right in the same vein, so to speak. Somebody who's basically playing a character that is, has a normal life underneath. Sort of normal, I guess you'd call it. That's like the the prom king and queen of like the Stephen King carry prom right there. That's amazing. <laughs> it really was. We got to sit in the front row too. It was so awesome. That is absolutely amazing. And this must have all been so exciting for you because as you say in your book, like, and I use this term in no derogatory way, obviously I've written a book with one of the most famous groupies, Miss Mercy, Mercy, good friends with Pamela DeBar, but you were kind of a a groupie before you, when you were just Cassandra, right? You were like, I mean, you were sort of an amateur groupie or like a, a a G rated, a PG rated groupie. Yes. Kind of. I started out. Uh, I started out G-rated, and uh, it slowly went downhill from there. But, uh, <laughs> but I don't think of "groupie" as a derogatory word whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I think, unfortunately, in more modern times, it "groupie" did become a word that has a negative connotation. But back in the day, honestly, I'd say up through sixties, seventies, and eighties. It was it was a great thing to be a groupie, you know. It was a a really cool thing. It was girls who really really loved music and musicians, but it wasn't like they were just uh, booty calls, you know. Mm-hmm. They loved particular bands, like like I even mentioned in my book. If I didn't like a band's music, I, there's just no way I could even ugh, stand to be around that person. Or it, it was so funny. I went to a concert once for, with the Grassroots. Remember <laughs> them? Yeah, way before the 80s. One of them ended up uh, being on uh, The Office. Seriously? Creed Batten. Creed Batten ended up being um, an actor you're, on The Office. You're kidding. I'm not. I remember I had breakfast with them in Colorado Springs at the Holiday Inn. I don't know how I ended up there at breakfast. I think it was because we'd just been there all night. And they said that they were more famous than the Beatles. And that was it. I just got up and left. I mean, I'm like, you cannot say that. But yeah. I had to really, really like a band's music in order to uh, hang with them, be with them, be their girlfriend or whatever, you know, and and it was pretty tame. Like I said, at that time, uh, I wasn't like, you know, just wham, bam, thank you, ma'am yet. But yeah, yeah. So it, it really was all about the music. It's all centered about the music. And if you love it and I think most of the groupies then wished they were in bands that I did. I wanted to be in a band, but there were no bands around that were girls back then. I mean, in the 80s, finally, mm-hmm. some came out. The only other ones before that were like in the 60s, the Ronettes, the Marvelettes, the, you know, sort of Motown manufactured groups a little bit more, Supremes, of course, who were all brilliant. But it wasn't quite the same thing as a band. And I see some Ronettes influence in the Elvira Buffon. Oh, hell yes. It was completely from Ronnie Spector. My friend Robert Redding, who helped me design the look, um, he drew pictures of it and he said, girl, you are having Ronnie Spector hairdo and it's called a knowledge bump. And that is that. That's what you're having. I'm like, okay, whatever you say. But he came up with that hairdo and it's just from a picture. But I mean, look online at Ronnie Spector back in the 60s and the Ronettes. Their, Their hair was higher than mine is. It's hard to believe. Why is it called a knowledge bump? I don't know. I think it's distinct to distinguish it from a beehive because they did not want them called beehives. They, I see. Yeah, I don't know. They, they came up with it, so don't ask me. Well, you say <laughs> you wanted to be in a band. You did do music. On, you know, maybe it wasn't your main focus, but you did it. We talked about Trick or Treat from 1984, but didn't you do a rap song too? Monster rap? 
I did. And that's one of my favorite ones John wrote. I really wish people could hear that song more because it was really, really clever at the time. It was a little bit of a takeoff of Madonna's uh, song. What's the one when she's naming all the people? Is it Vogue? Yes. Better Garbo, Anne Monroe, DiMaggio, that one, yeah. So it was a little bit of a parody of Vogue. All the music was different, but the, the little rap section was the same, except I'm listing off like, Freddy Krueger gives good glove. Bella Lugosi and Poltergeist, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and the Adams family. Pyramid power of the mummy, aliens bursting from your tummy. There are monsters that I love. Freddy Krueger gives good glove. So yeah, it's a really clever and funny and cute song, I think. So I hope people can find it. Also, he did another one that I sang called Living in a Haunted House. Found the something strange, the rattle of bones and chains, and get misgivings, living in a haunted house. They're scratching at the door, feel a heartbeat through the floor. It's a ghostly rhythm, living in a haunted house. Living in a haunted house might have been the song that could have been a breakout song. No, it actually could have been like um, a song they played on the radio or something, but... They never got to that point. So that's a bummer. What music was in your movie, Mistress of the Dark? I know you're really proud of that movie. You feel that it, you know, kind of, and I agree that it kind of didn't really get its due at the box office and it kind of became a cult classic later. Um, But there was a lot of, did you curate the soundtrack for that? I sat with the director and we went through all kinds of songs you have to put put in that. Uh, Again, um, John Paragon wrote the end song, Here I Am. With, you're not going to believe, Todd Rundgren, who produced that song. Yeah. All of the songs were chosen. I chose the opening song, Do I Diddy, by Man for Man. Is that, no, is that Man for Man? I believe so. And the Earth Man. Do I Diddy. Just a song that I really, really loved. And I thought kind of captured Elvira's sassy vibe. But yeah, the director and I sat down and went together thinking, what, what songs could we pull clips from that would, you know, relate to these movies? And the person that did the soundtrack was Danny Elfman's assistant. We couldn't afford Danny Elfman. And I, I had been, Oingo Boingo was another um, person I'd been banned. I was chase, chasing around for years. Um, oh my God, if you and Danny Elfman, I mean, I know he's with Bridget Fonda and I'm sure he's, you know, they're a great power couple. But if you and Danny Elfman had been a couple, oh. my God, that would have been the absolute power couple of Halloween because he owns Halloween, Dead Man's Party, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas. I did my best. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. We did become really good friends, which is which is great. But yeah, oh, my God, I love Danny and I've known him very, very well for very long. And I tried, of course, to get him to do my soundtrack and he was willing to do it, but he was way out of our budget. So he very graciously loaned me his assistant who wrote all the music and did all the music with him. And he did the music for the, you know, just the soundtrack, just the musical, the instrumentals. I have read on Wikipedia. So I want you to let me know if this is true, that you did bad by Michael Jackson on the soundtrack. Is that true? What? No. Okay. Wikipedia. I, I was hoping it was true that like, you know, you uh, didn't, because you I ended up not on thriller that you ended up doing bad, but I was yeah, like, I went, I was seriously searching for that on, so okay uh, i met michael up. jackson at the i think it was at the grammys or the mtv awards i can't remember which but had the the rhinestone glove on and everything and i i mentioned it in my book but it was you know he was going oh my god Elvira, we should have had you do thriller and i was like 
Oh, I know, right? And that was the first I'd heard of it. And I didn't hear about the the other part where the writer wanted me for until many years later. But yeah, I wish I would have been on Bad Damn It. Oh. Well, maybe you could remake it at some other time. But what to wrap <laughs> it up, obviously, you know, you've done your own music, you've curated soundtracks, you've curated TV specials and stuff. What is the 80s scary music or goth music or whatever that you gravitate towards the most in, besides your own? Hmm. Was it in, okay, one of my favorite songs was like, well, David Bowie did so many great ones, but okay, was that the 80s still or was it the early 90s? Like Scary Monsters and Cat People, the theme from Cat People that he did was so freaking brilliant. That's definitely 80s. Scary Monsters came out in 1980, if I'm not mistaken. So just got in there to start the 80s off right. And that's actually my favorite Bowie album. So, oh my God, just so great. I mean, David Bowie, uh. Um, and like scary music, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, the cramps, of course, did great songs. Well, if anyone wants to go down a, a deep, dark, scary black hole of the internet, YouTube searching and what other music of yours would you recommend for their Fright Night soundtrack? We got Monster Rap. We got Trick or Treat. We got Living in a Haunted House. I have one that I did with Fred Schneider of the B-52s, another one of my favorite, favorite bands. Amazing. Oh, my we God. We did that together. And it was written by Fred and Holly Knight, who wrote Holly Knight is a major songwriter who, who wrote a million and one hit songs. Yeah, I think she wrote Tina Love Turner. is a Battlefield. Yeah. She, wrote, uh, she co-wrote Obsession with Michael DeBar. Right. Right. And a million other hits. So she wrote that song and Fred and Fred, uh, Fred did the lyrics and he and I recorded it. God, I don't know. I have a whole list. I think if you go on Amazon and look up Elvira's greatest hits, you might find it. That's hits with with an H, by the way. Um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, <laughs> I went. Yeah, I wish I could get my music, the, the music out there, because you know, although none of it is uh, maybe Grammy worthy, I think it's all fun music for Halloween time. Absolutely. But I will tell you my number one favorite Halloween song. Okay. The, and this is an 80s song. I think it's an 80s song. Is It's Halloween by the Shags. Ooh. Oh, my God. Have you ever heard that? I have not. I think that might be more 70s or 60s. But you know what? What is, what is time? What is, you know, you are the queen of Halloween. If you say the Shags, the Shags it is. Tell me about okay. the song. I've never heard it. Oh, you have to hear it. It's the scariest song ever written. It's time for games. It's time for fun. Not for just one, but for everyone. It's Halloween. It's Halloween. It's Halloween. If you're saying that, I am absolutely sold. So thank you so much, Elvira, for all the suggestions of what we can listen to for our freaky uh, Fright Night soundtrack this year. Yours cruelly, Elvira, is out now in paperback. It is the perfect Halloween read or, you know, seance read, candlelight read, any time of year. It's good. Every day is, as ministry says, every day is Halloween. So thank you so much. for me. (laughs) So thank you so much, Elvira, for this spooktacular chat and stick around listeners because we have more tricks and treats for you when Bright Light, Bright Light and MNDR join this dead man's party on Totally 80s. The 
Thanks again to Elvira, the queen of Halloween, for joining me on a very spooky episode of Totally 80s. And now it is time to continue the creepy conversation with the crown prince and princess of darkness. First, we actually have a repeat guest to Totally 80s. He was on a three-peat episode, an electronic musician, DJ, and humanitarian who you heard on the Divas three-part episode, and whose recent album, Fun City, hit number one on the UK dance chart, and who happens to be a massive horror buff. So it's a man literally named after a Gremlins reference. So there you go. A little bit of horror there. Bright Light, Bright Light, a.k.a. Rod Thomas. Welcome back to Totally 80s, Rod. Oh, thank you for having me. What a what a treat to be able to talk about 80s horror once more, but like officially not just me talking to my cat about it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, that would be a podcast I'd listen to. I also want to commend you for understanding the assignment. Rod is wearing a chopping mall t-shirt which uh, perhaps we'll talk about the chopping mall uh, score or soundtrack later on in this 100%. episode. 100%. <laughs> but we also have Amanda Warner, a.k.a. MNDR, a Grammy-winning electropop artist, songwriter, and record producer who also goes by the name Deep Cuts in the Halloween supergroup Lovecraft. And she also gave me the name Grimsy Darker, which I will use for the rest of this show. I will henceforth be known as Grimsy Darker. How are you doing, Deep Cuts, a.k.a. MNDR, a.k.a. Amanda Warner? I am doing so amazing because it's my favorite time of year. Yeah. It is October and it Rocktober. is spooky and it's, it's Rocktober. It's all of it. So I am doing everything spooky I can possibly do. Well, as ministry said, and this is a song I'm definitely going to be bringing up every day is Halloween here at really Totally 80s. And you two, you two are really like the biggest scary music, scary soundtrack, horror experts I know in the music world. So this is going to be really awesome. So I guess before we start getting into like specific songs and soundtracks and stuff, please tell me like how you guys got into scary music. And I know obviously you work on it. We'll talk a little bit about Lovecraft and also Rod, I know you did a a short film soundtrack. So Mm -hmm. let's just tell me what, what are your credentials, your creepy credentials? When I was a kid, you had to go we would go to a video store. So that will date me, but I love, (laughs) I love Mm -hmm. that I got this experience. So we would travel to a video store every weekend and every weekend there were new horror movies because the direct to video market was quite big. So these were like movies that didn't have theatrical releases and movie theaters. And I would just get them based, like rent, whatever, just looked absolutely bonkers. And I had, there was like no rules on what I could could and couldn't rent basically. (laughs) So, and from that, I just fell in love with horror. And that is just like echoed throughout my entire creative life completely up. You know, I own like a terabyte of B minus horror films. Yes. yeah, and I have them in a database, just to let you know, if you guys ever want to know. Thus, I'm a huge Choppy Mall uh, fanatic. <laughs> oh, it's just the best. Awesome. And I love just everything about horror movies, and I love everything about the music in horror movies, from, like, huge soundtracks to, like, Christopher Young, who we collaborated with on our album this year. He did the... <sighs> The soundtrack for Hellraiser, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, and Sinister, all the way down to um, Killer Party. There's some like amazing original songs that were made. I've actually covered that, which I will send you uh, for a fun side project I do. And just everything about it is 
just tickles my spooky fancy. And a lot of the Lovecraft music that you do, which is a Halloween super group you do with a bunch of other big producers, has a very 80s feel, very thriller, Ghostbusters kind of feel. Yes. Like we we sort of I mean, there's been a couple golden eras or of uh, horror, you know, it's obviously 50s with like the, you know, you go to the theater on the week on a Saturday and see like three or four movies in a row. And then you have 70s horror, which was like amazing. One of my favorite eras and groups like Goblin and Tangerine Dream and I think there's just like a gravitation to like sound design and synthesis Mm. that we see in the seventies and eighties. I think it just speaks so well to horror and for giving us that extra fourth wall auditory chills and thrills. I can see Rod nodding and yes, Mm -hmm. Rod, I know you you two are of the same mind and you know, I, I know you have a huge collection of soundtracks. I know you own like the Hellraiser cube. I've seen it. I don't, please don't bring it out. It will scare me. I don't want to tempt the fates. Um, I've watched your DJ sets you've done. I think they were called like bright light, bright light, fright night, fright night on Twitch. So you're obviously an expert as well. So tell me a little bit about how you came into all. It sounds like maybe you have a similar journey. Oh, it's like the twin story, you know, like going <laughs> to the the video stores as a kid. And I remember seeing this like gigantic life-size pinhead cut out cardboard thing. And I was scared like out of my brain, but like desperately wanted to watch it, you know, and it was just seeing these like images. Like I loved looking at the boxes and just seeing the artwork, like the crazy posters that people made for these movies that really were like a lot of the time better than the movies, but it, it just made you dream so big and like the colors and the design and the, the like artistry was just phenomenal. So for me, like, 80s horror and like well 70s 80s horror is really about like the mirroring of like music and imagery and like the cinematography like creating these weird like dank strange worlds and then the music just is the music's another character and I can't imagine these films like I'm obsessed with the Jallo movies but all of those like trash you know exploitative horror films that really just like are very you know trope driven and they always like kind of announce like seven deaths by Jennifer's <laughs> mom and you're like oh I wonder how many people will die in this one um, <laughs> it's just delicious like everything about it is is so fun and it's so camp but mm-hmm. also like really dirty and really like v- vulgar and vile it's just like the best of everything it lets your imagination go kind of crazy so I would watch everything I could from the video store as a kid. And bear in mind, I grew up in South Wales, so there were limited options other than the mainstream ones. But then when I got access to the internet and could like download these movies and really like learn about them and follow from actor to actor and director to director, and then discovering a couple of years ago, this like Jallo world on YouTube where all of them were free. I just watched all of the movies, bought all of the vinyl you know, just went absolutely crazy and spent the whole of COVID just watching them over and over and like (laughs) being a really insane person and like, (laughs) you know, deliriously slipping between reality and fiction and not knowing whether I was like, you know, holding a knife or a piece of cake and it was fabulous. Well, there's there's worse ways to spend COVID. Yeah, um, it was just that's amazing. I mean, that was a real horror movie, horror story. So why not escape in a Hellraiser, the Hellraiser world? 
you know, I'd be opening that cube to be honest. It's like, that yeah. seems like a better world, but in to get back to like kind of eighties music and stuff, it could be a song from a soundtrack or a, a piece of music from a score. But if push, what if when push comes to shove, what is your all time favorite, what you would call Halloween song from the 1980s? I will go first. I sort of spoiled it. I have to say it's every day is Halloween by ministry. I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of synth pop era ministry. I'm still waiting for Al Jurgensen to finally come to peace with wit sympathy and start playing songs from that album again. Uh, he did dip his toe into the earlier 80s stuff he does because he did do every day as Halloween for like the first time in 30 years about, uh, I think in 2018, I was in concert. I went to see him in concert. He did an acoustic version, which isn't what I wanted, mm-hmm. but he did it with Dave Navarro and Chris Connolly. And I was very happy to hear it again. So that that's one of them. But actually, it's probably like the sec. That's probably like the part two in the sequel. If I really have to say it has to be and it has a movie connection. A hundred percent is Bella Lugosi's dead from the opening. Well, obviously, a lot of people know from the opening sequence in The Hunger and mm-hmm. David Bowie, you know, you could go into cat people and other things he's done. But I mean, it's it's a very epic song from probably the best goth, like pure goth band there was. I understand that they wrote it in like five minutes or something it's kind of the free bird of goth because it goes on forever and it's just like this big and the best moment i have it's not didn't happen in the 80s but the best moment i ever had at coachella which was 2005 coachella was when bauhaus played uh, there and they had recently it was one of the many kind of reunions they've had over the years and they played the song first like all eight nine minutes of it and Peter Murphy entered best entrance in Co- in Coachella history. He descended from the rafters or whatever, <sighs> upside down, suspended <laughs> upside down, like a vampire bat, hanging oh. upside down in some kind of straitjacket, singing almost like the whole first few minutes, like two minutes, the whole first verse of it. In while singing upside down, which I'm sure you both know as musical artists is not easy to do, like in an inverted Christ pose. And at the end of it, he said, and now you can say you were there. And I'm like, I sure as hell can say I was there. The little goose is dead. The bats have left the bell tower. The victims have been bled that velvet lines. The black box. The little goose is dead. That's like the most epic song. And of course, there's nothing sexier than, you know, Peter Murphy in a cage while like David Bowie and Susan Sarandon and uh, or Catherine Deneuve, I should say, are like, you know, calling people in their sexy like penthouse apartment. So Bella Lugosi's dead for me. Every day is Halloween by Ministry of Close Second. What about you guys? Number one 80s Halloween music moment or song. Okay, so. I love a bit. This is going to get tangent world, but I think let's just get weird because it's it's Halloween. Um, <laughs> I legitimately love the song that is called Best Times, and it's for the movie I was talking about earlier. It was the 1986 movie Killer Party, <gasps> where it's a killer party, and there's <laughs> quite literally, <laughs> and it's like. Honestly, one of the most it is the most fucked up song I've ever heard in a way that's like it, it it's like a synth wave record from 1986. Mm. A lot as weird as like strawberry switchblade. Okay, wow. you're speaking my language. You're absolutely speaking my language. I think you know how I feel about strawberry switchblade. I own I own many polka dotted outfits. Exactly. And I mean like like Scottish, right? 
Iconic. I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like iconic legends, but just kind of offsetting like weird. Like what is with Strawberry Switchblade, right? It always, whenever I go down a Strawberry Switchblade like void, I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, I wish I knew, I feel like I would have been friends with them and thought they were so cool that I just would have been like, I don't even know what their reference points are, but they're so amazing. But they, right? they didn't do the best time song. They just, that was sort of a Bible-like as they say in the biz. Right. Yeah. So to me, best times gives me the same feeling. And I feel like who the writers for best times, which is probably just like a songwriter and producer, like fucked up on whatever because that's what it sounds like to me okay alan brackett and scott shelley (laughs) and and just like random it sounds like they made it in an hour and i feel like their (laughs) biggest reference was strawberry switchblade and it came out like in the most naive weird offsetting creepy why is this in the movie crazy to the point where i've covered it for a wedding oh my god you need i think lovecraft need to cover it and put it out Right. I need to hear it, but I need to hear the original as well. I mean, I'm I'm completely intrigued. You're checking so many boxes for me. Uh, and it's interesting that you say it sounds like it was written in a brief period of time, because as I mentioned, the Bella Lugosi's Dead was apparently written in basically the amount of time it took to like the actual like real time length of the song. And it's like the most classic goth you know song there is. So I'm definitely putting that on my on my to do list is to like watch that movie Killer Party. These are the best times of our lives. Killer party, best times. And, and Rod, what about you? I imagine you're going to have a very left field choice as well. Uh, it's a little mainstream to horror fans, but it's maybe left field for other people. But I have visual aid, which is uh, Return of the Living Dead. <gasps> and it is the SSQ song, Tonight We Make Love Till We Die. So a lot of people don't know that Stacy Q was actually the singer of SSQ, which is just absolutely fucking wonderful. And this song is like such a like sassy, you know, pop disaster genius piece of music. I really like in an ideal world that would have been a gigantic hit single and it would have been the song played at every Halloween party instead of like Ghostbusters. Because it's just (laughs) it's so cool. It's such a cool song. And it just like the vocals are divine on it, you know. And the fact that she had such a big hit with like Two of Hearts, but this song wasn't a hit, I think is real injustice. I think it's an amazing, amazing piece of music. I was a big fan of another song on that soundtrack because I'm from L.A. where death mm. rock, which is not the same thing as goth. Death rock is a subset, a subgenre of goth. And it's very L.A. specific, which is interesting because, you know, when you think of L.A., people think of Sun and Malibu and Kardashians or whatever they think of. But there's a, always been a real dark music element here. And 45 Grave are on that soundtrack doing mm-hmm. a it's party time. Do yeah. you want to party? So I'm a bit I but I'm gonna recheck that soundtrack because yes, SSQ. We don't think of when we think Stacy Q, we don't probably think of Halloween. We may think of Valentine's Day because of two hearts, but mm-hmm. now we know. So she's got all the niche holidays covered. That woman is genius. <laughs> She is, uh, talk about a subset podcast, one of the great, one of the most cuckoo freestyle artists of all time, plus 
hats to you, Grimsley, for just talking about 45 Grave. I love you. <laughs> I want to do a freestyle podcast for Totally 80, so I'm going to invite you back for that. But I want to stay on an LA tip for a minute because I like to represent mm-hmm. is I do have to bring up Oingo Boingo. Of course, yeah. a lot of people, when they think Danny Elfman, understandably, he's very associated with Halloween, but they think Nightmare Before Christmas and it's Halloween. And as someone who grew up in L.A. and is of a certain age, Danny Elfman will always be the guy from Oingo Boingo to me. And if you grew up in L.A. in the 80s, Oingo Boingo, which was his band, obviously, before he got with Tim Burton, became one of like the most successful and interesting soundtrack composers around with such a special sound. When he was in Oingo Boingo, Oingo Boingo used to do these big shows at places like the Greek Theater, like 5,000 seat type places in L.A. That was called the Dead Man's Party, special Halloween shows. It was the hot ticket to go to. And the so I definitely have to bring up them. And also I put even maybe weird science into that category. And then the other big L.A. shows that used to happen more in the 90s, but definitely a band that made its mark in the 80s. The Cramps, they used to do mm-hmm. these epic Halloween shows at places like House of Blues, nice. Lux Interior and his like PVC panties, like palating um, microphone being absolutely scary and awesome. And they I mean, there's so many songs I could nominate from the Cramps. For They're the also season. on this soundtrack. Lindsay. Yeah. What, on the on the uh, yeah. return, uh, return Surfing of the dead. living dead. Surfing on dead the, is on what's, is it the Revenge of the Living Dead? Return, or return of, of the, the Living Dead. So what song is on there? Surfing Dead. Surf and Dead. I mean, any yeah. song will really do. Just like yeah. throw a, a dart at a wall yeah. of cramp songs. Human Fly. I was a, a teenage werewolf. I miss Lux Interior so much. So I definitely have to mention them as LA ones. And then I'll go over to the UK for a minute to say, since I'm sort of on the goth tip, I have to talk about The Damned for a second because The Damned were an interesting second act band as they started off like kind of from that first wave of UK punk, like with the Sex Pistols and whatever, The Clash. But they then had, I discovered them, as like kind of a, um, a a goth band. I actually think I discovered them from the Young Ones when they were doing Nasty on my favorite Young Ones episode, the video Nasty episode. And then, of course, I discovered Grimly Fiendish and Phantasmagoria, which actually has Nick Cave's wife, Susie Cave, as she is now known. She's the girl on the cover of that album, fun fact. Wow. And, and then oh, it goes on. I could do this whole, fact. I could filibuster this whole and just list all the songs I like, but I want to go back to you guys for a minute because you guys... Something that I don't have as much knowledge about, like I can talk at length about like Susie and the Banshees and Specimen and stuff like that. But I don't I have a little bit of hole in my knowledge when it comes to soundtracks and scores. I'm not as much as a movie buff as you guys. So I'd love for you guys to talk to me about, especially like the ones that no one like knows about. Like, I love the fact that you're kind of doing these no pun intended deep cuts or maybe pun intended. Um, So, yeah, tell me about some other more like must hear that goes. That's also must see must see TV for Halloween. Okay, I'm going to jump in immediately because I am like beyond obsessed with the film April Fool's Day, okay. which is um, it's I think it's in my top three films of all time. I watch this film maybe like once a month um, and it has a Charles <laughs> Bernstein score, which is like absolutely to die for. Like everybody knows him really from like, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street. Fantastic. Great. Deadly Friend. Fantastic. But this score is like out of control. Good. It's so good. The movie has the most delicious twist that I've ever seen of any horror film. And I love like watching it with people for the first time. And when the twist happens, people are like, what, what? And like lose <laughs> their fucking brain. It's so amazing. It's got Amy Steele, who is in uh, Friday the 13th Part 2, an incredible actress, like way beyond the horror genre. She's an incredible, incredible actor. 
Um, it has Deborah Foreman from Valley Girl. It's absolutely fantastic. Oh. Um, and I think this is one of my favorite scores. I, I think I paid like 50 bucks for this on vinyl because I really wanted that noose, um, the noose hair, if you can see that. like Yeah, everyone artwork. really needs to watch this one on YouTube for all the visual aids you're bringing to the table. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. amazing. What about you, Deep Cuts, a.k.a. MNDR? My favorite horror film. like Or there. like for, for, for soundtrack or so, or score. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to go Deep Cuts again. Okay. Awesome. I'm going to get deep and just like mm-hmm. in, the, in the dark corners. Um, Black Devil Doll from Hell. Right Ooh, awesome. I haven't. It is on my watch list, but I haven't seen it. Okay, I saw it <laughs> by... <laughs> Honest. Okay. So I used to live in the Bay area, which is, is, I mean, to me, the center of all amazing horror and horror culture is LA and it's creepy, creepy step cousin is San Francisco cool. and uh, with residents and snake finger and all of that stuff. Um, so one of the most like outrageously bizarre noise artists I was friends with there in the early aughts gave me a, a, a VHS mm. and said, check this out. And it was a, it was a horror movie made in the South side of Chicago in the early eighties on VHS about a doll that comes <laughs> to life and on VHS, by the way. And that's the a good trope. It's a good trope. Speaking of horror tropes, the, the dolls come into life. Mm-hmm. Yes, it may, etc. And um the doll, okay, so there is a the soundtrack is all made on a Casio. Amazing. And <laughs> there's a club scene that truly blows my mind on like a craft work like meets Juan Atkins level. I'm just like, because it it kind of was like cross-sectioning with early electro techno in terms of the era that this was made in Chicago and like early house. It is bonkers. It is often referenced in horror movie guides. And it's so creepy because truly little is known about how this movie was made and who made it. And it'll have three sentences. It is crazy. It is on YouTube. If you want, I have copies. I send them on bloody (laughs) You. I think we need to have some viewing parties after this podcast is taped because I'm my watch list is growing as we speak. I do want to ask you guys something. We've obviously brought up Nightmare on Elm Street several times already during this mm-hmm. this podcast. It's like one of the most iconic franchises. And obviously there was a lot of great music that came out of it, you know. But I'm curious when I was starting to like sort of prepare for this podcast, it is referenced so much in hip hop songs. Here are just a, I'm just gonna read you a list of hip hop songs that reference Nightmare on Elm Street. Obviously there's Nightmare on My Street by GZ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. There's Nightmare on Chill Street by MC Chill. There's Are You Ready for Freddy by the Fat Boys. MC AIDS, Nightmare on AIDS Street. MC Freddy Case, Freddy's Party, This Ain't No Nightmare. A rapper named Bit Bizarre had Freddy's Groove. Like, what is it about hip hop that gravitated towards this as opposed to Friday the 13th or Hellraiser or, you know, one of the other franchise Chucky. Do you have a theory? Cause it's, there's a lot of hip hop songs about Freddy Krueger. Do they just hate children? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Freddy's lore is terrifying. It's horrible. Yeah. I don't really glorify that, but I think like as a horror iconic character, he just has more swag. 
Yeah, he's, he's kind of sad. a boss of the underworld. He's like, you know, in the way that the um, the Godfather is sort of glorified in hip hop culture. I feel like Freddie's just got swag. Okay, and we uh, when we're, since we're on the subject, I do have to mention, of course, we have to talk about you know Dream Warriors by Dawkins. At least I have to talk about it because yeah. there and then and then since we're talking about like metal and soundtracks, a lot of people think of Alice Cooper from the seventies. Welcome to my nightmare, but he did two songs from the Friday Thirteenth. I think it was the Jason Lives. He did a Teenage Frankenstein, and he's back. I mean, you know, metal obviously it's like not a big stretch. I would probably say my favorite Halloween song though from a movie. Speaking of Tim Burton, is the burn in hell scene with Twisted Sister from Pee Wee's. And then you'll burn in hell. Oh, burn in hell. You wanna burn in hell. Grimsley. Because <laughs> I love anything <laughs> Tim Burton. Yes. And that's where Danny Elfman got his start. That was the first soundtrack he ever wrote. So I'm just, wow. or score he ever wrote. So that's just gonna Super slip that in there. And since we're also on the subject of hip hop, I do also have to say, I don't think there's any better like two hip hop Halloween songs than the Haunted House of Rock and the Freaks Come Out at Night by Houdini. Yeah. Yeah. That was, those were big. When you, actually they played those a lot at the freestyle clubs. They, that was, they definitely filled the floor. So definitely wanted to mention those. Um, I also want to like, obviously we've talked about some really like, you know, scary songs, some dark songs, definitely, you know, some, you know, very, obscure songs are maybe obscure to people to see here but you know actually a lot of 80s big 80s halloween hits are quite lighthearted. so like which would you say is like the ultimate kind of 80s like pop halloween song i'm gonna just pit the two against each other is it michael jackson's thriller mm. or is it ghostbusters by ray parker jr i feel it's a close close race there put aside mm. any like unsavory stuff about you know michael jackson yeah. obviously and just the song sure. itself and the era in which it was, you know, came out and how it was perceived. Both of them have great visuals. Yeah. Both of them, one was a, one was connected to a major movie. One basically had a had a video that was a movie. Um, and I've done. I I probably am going to lean a little bit more towards Thriller because I have done flash mobs of the dance, and I did once on a Halloween afternoon go to a dance like a robust class where we learned the dance. It's hard, actually. I'm going to say mm. it's not easy to do the Thriller dance. But where are you guys? I don't know why I'm making up this rivalry. I just feel like it's fun, fun Halloween say, activity. I would say that Thriller has um, survived its era and remains a Halloween classic because I hear it played a lot more than I hear Ghostbusters played. I don't know if people like Ghostbusters lives very firmly in my like childhood and mm-hmm. film world, but I don't often hear that played out, which is, you know, Interesting because I, for me as a kid, that was one of the, the biggest songs in the world. Like I thought that song was like number one constantly every single year, and I <laughs> would hear it all the time. But I hear Thriller all the time as a, as an adult. Like every single time, like you know, September 29th, September thirtieth rolls around, <laughs> Thriller comes out. The Vincent Price bit is just absolutely beyond iconic. You know, it's interesting when Elvira was on earlier in this episode, she was originally the person they had in mind to do that spoken word interlude in the song. Wow. And yeah, it was supposed to the person who wrote it was thinking Elvira at first. But then, of course, you know, Vincent Price was available and, you know, um, wow. she completely understands why he, you know, got the job or whatever. But I've always wanted like an alternate take. Oh, my God. One of you guys cover it <laughs> or do some kind of an, or interpolation of it and 
I'll put you in touch with Elvira and you can have her do like her own spoken Absolutely word. incredible. I think they're both incredible songs. I think they're both such wonderful interpolations of the idea of Halloween and ghost and spookiness in a way that's like accessible and kind of mainstream, but also really clever. Like the writing is so clever. The hooks are like wild. The hooks are like, no pun intended, like out of this world. You know, they're like so good. Those songs, like the minute you start thinking about them, you kind of, they start playing like auto playing in your head. What I think is is funny is that Ray Parker Jr.'s video for Ghostbusters wasn't really that Halloween-ish. It had like, you know what, Danny DeVito or people going like, Ghostbusters. Yeah, but he was- made this weird ass video for The Other Woman, which is my favorite Ray Parker Jr. song. By the way, my middle name is Ray. So when I was a kid, I was like real excited that I was like Lindsay Ray Parker. I used to tell people, put the junior That's- on the end of my name. <laughs> Just cause. Oh my God. Lindsay Ray Parker Jr. But The Other Woman video... Have you seen it? It's like very cheesy. Like it's in like a graveyard and there's like sexy vampire women. And I have no idea why whoever I've talked to him actually about this. I believe with you, uh, Amanda, when we interviewed him, um, that he had this really weird video that was in a graveyard and that's the scary video. And a lot of. Yeah, he was freaked out during that as well. He's actually he is afraid of ghosts. He he, ironically. Maybe yeah. that's why he the song isn't his biggest thrillers because he you know didn't really have conviction with what he was singing. He actually is scared of ghosts. But I going back to music videos. I was talking earlier before Elvira about how like Billy Idol had Dancing with Myself, which was directed by Toby Hooper, who did Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And there are a lot of music videos as a child of MTV that I actually think of as Halloween songs because of the video like Jeopardy by Greg Kinn. That's a white wedding by Billy Idol. Apparently, like they were trying to warn us not to get married in the 80s Mm -hmm. because there were all these like scary weddings. Bark of the Moon by Ozzy Osbourne, where he like turns into, a, I believe, a werewolf. And Mm -hmm. Warlock by Skinny Puppy. Watch that video. You know that one? That's all like- that's all like st- like public domain footage from like weird, scary movies. It's really hard to watch, actually. It's very gory. I don't think MTV played it except like on 120 minutes, like very late at night. Also, even Tom Petty's Don't Come Around Here No More video was like terrified with me with the cake. You know, it's just like, what? Why did I've, that happen? God, the 80s were great. I've interviewed the, <laughs> I've interviewed the guy, Jeff Stein, who Jeff Stein directed that video. Oh, wow. Just in case you ever wanted to know where that cake was from, it was from Hanson's right here on Fairfax in in Los Angeles. And they only bought one cake. So they had to get it right the first time. There was no other takes. It did get banned or or censored by MTV because they thought it was misogynistic and they made him take out the burp where Tom Petty eats the cake uh, because it seemed a little too cannibalistic. But fun fact, Jeff Stein also directed, you may have thoughts on this, Torture by the Jacksons. You remember that video? <laughs> he no. Would, he, oh, perhaps you, you haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. Yeah. I've All seen right. It. You guys, that's on your watch list after the, it's basically list a going. very cheesy video. It was, it was, I believe Paul Abdul's first choreography job, oh, wow. but it's, and Michael Jackson didn't show up uh, and they had to use a wax dummy for him. They didn't Ugh. know they had one at the ready because they thought he might not show up. Oh, I and, no, I have seen this. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. I it's like, a, it's a dummy. horror theme. Is yes. That- is that song on Victory? Sorry, just uh, yes, it is. It's yeah. the Victory era, and it has like you know, like them reaching into like 
you know, terrible acting. It's actually probably worse acting than, than Chopping Mall or any of the films you're talking about with like <laughs> them reaching into walls of goo and then like looking at their hand and there's like an eyeball growing out of their hand. Then they're like caught in a spider web. It's, Jeff Stein doesn't think it's his best work, but he's wrong. It's a classic. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but he he said it was a nightmare to make it, but it's absolutely like one of my favorite Halloween maybe didn't age that well, even at the time it was campy, but I think we've all established here that we, that we're fond of camp camp and Halloween go hand in hand. Yeah. I mean, that's what's that. That's always, there's certain genres of horror that I don't, that don't speak to me visually, like the gore porn and stuff like that. Absolutely the same. Yeah. Yeah. Like no shots to that. Like the soft franchise, although I like saw one, but, but it just, that's not like, fun you know what i mean the camp aspect is great and i think what also made thriller like so amazing outside of like it's like groundbreaking like i'm gonna get really dorky like engineering techniques by bruce swidi and they they developed um recording techniques that had never been used before in the studio is john landis i feel like it's the first music music that was so attached to the visual aspect and was so well done. Mm. And they also did that documentary, the making of which I would no, no kidding, watch on a weekly basis when I was a kid. It, it was just like, it, it just was like an event. I was about to say that I was, I was, I mean, I remember as a child when it was premiering every, it, I believe if I'm not mistaken, it was either, I'd have to look up the date, but it was either Hanukkah or Thanksgiving. I remember I was at my grandmother's house, have, or maybe it was a Jewish holiday, but I was at my grandmother's house having dinner. And I was like, sorry, grandma, they're about to show Thriller on MTV. And I don't, you don't own a VCR. So I, and I don't know how to program the one I have at home. So I'm dating myself now. So yeah, I watched it. We all gathered around the neighbors next door came and it was a very, very big deal. And like I said, people wow. are still doing flash mobs of the dance. We, there's videos. You look up like thriller flash mob and, you know, He's, you see that it was a little more successful than his brother's uh, torture video. A little bit. Both Halloween classics or whatever. But I want to go back into a little bit of my I don't know how deep you go into like the goth thing or the death rock thing. I, Amanda, it seems like I, I you've perked up a couple of times when I've mentioned that. Yeah. I, I mean, are you kidding me? I was like full on my sisters and I were just full in the zone with that, with goth death rock. Like we just loved it. That was our full zone in the, and still is for me. I mean, I often reference those records when I'm working. Did you, have like a full-on goth phase either of you like in turn did you shave your eyebrows off and pencil them back in like Susie sue like i did i don't recommend that <laughs> by the way don't try this at home kids they don't grow back very well but it was worth it at the time to get like i didn't know how to like block brows then i just i wanted the Susie look Susie was my number one i have right. to mention obviously she has a song called halloween so i have yeah. to mention that but yeah. spellbound i would say which actually has gotten Hasn't gotten quite the bump that, you know, Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush or even like Never Ending Story by Lamal got from Stranger Things. But they did in the most recent season four finale of Stranger Things, they did have Spellbound, I believe, in the end credits. And I was pretty stoked about that. But my favorite band of all time, which actually has total connections to uh, to Susie and the Banshees because Robert Smith was in the Banshees for a minute and also had the side project, The Glove, with uh, Steve Severn from the Banshees, is The Cure. And a lot of people actually think of them 
they don't think of themselves as a goth band. They actually like will bristle if you say that, but I'm just going to say, I think they are, at least they're the goth fathers. And there's so many songs I can mention by them. We, I, I've done actually for people who are listening, we have a whole cure pot, like specific podcast with Jenny V from Eagles of Death Metal, like that you can listen to uh, on Totally 80s. There's many ways you could go. There's very obvious choices like the funeral party or these any pretty much anything from the pornography record. But I'm going to go with a song off the first album off um, Three Imaginary Boys, which is called um, Subway Song, which is basically just a kind of like scary film noir thing about like a woman being stalked in a subway. And then there's like a bunch of spooky music and then this blood curdling female scream at the end like it's a very Jack the Ripper type situation. I remember it used to really scare my sister when I would play Subway Song by The Cure uh, at home. She would run into the other room. So, of course, I played it all the time because I saw it was a <laughs> mean older sister. I'm sorry, Morgan. Um, but yeah, I'm going to I'm going to say that one. But I'm curious, uh, both of you, but especially Amanda, um, because, you know, you said you were you had a goth phase. Did you ever goth phase, Rod? I did not. No. Um no, I went, I had friends who were very into the goth kind of like world and scene, but I was somewhere between like um, indie rock and like outrageous pop dance music. You know, I was one of those gays growing up where I was listening to like Björk and Tori Amos and like Living Joy and Robin S. <laughs> like at the same time and just having dance parties in my head where it was like show me love with like hu- human behavior and then like yes. the original version of professional widow into like you know don't stop moving by live and joy and it my my world was very strange but i didn't quite embrace the goth as i have done sort of like later in my adult years i wasn't cool basically I you were cool. super cool obviously i was not cool. cool i was no i was really not so cool, cool. I was not cool. No one when they were a kid. I didn't No one. Now I like look at pictures of myself as a teenager with, you know, my Susie Sue shaved off eyebrows and my black lipstick and my lunchbox pale. And I'm like, and my crimped hair and all of that. And I'm like, wow, I actually was kind of cool, but I didn't think I, yeah, that's a cool, I like, I'm not embarrassed by like my eighties high school photos. Like some people are, but like, or my, you know, eighties childhood photos, I should say, but like a lot of people don't think they're cool when they're kids, which is maybe why we gravitate towards these kind of like horror misfit type things in the first place, because they do definitely kind of speak to feeling weird, feeling disenfranchised. Mm. I was definitely in the kitsch world versus goth. You know, I was really drawn to like camp, surprisingly, like camp and kitsch and weird and kooky. So like I would be in like the chopping mall versus like the hunger as Mm. a teenager. I just loved like, something with a sense of humor because I found like the world that I grew up in to be very like dull mm-hmm. and, and sort of, you know, calm. So I think the humor for me and the kind of laughing at yourself was what I craved and what I gravitated towards versus the kind of introverted uh, goth world, which I did appreciate. And I liked certain songs in that world. Like I was, you know, a big like garbage skunk and Nancy smashing pumpkins fan mm. And placebo as well. But like, oh, yeah, I didn't feel like I belonged in that world. Whereas if I saw like, you know, Chopping Mall or like Dubstar, this band who were like really big in the UK, that those kind of bands, I was like, oh, I feel like I could belong with them because I like wearing pink, too. And like, you know, I, I like re- sunflowers and like LCD visuals and um, I love, you that know, tri- trippy things. So, so I, 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 felt, I felt like home in the camp. 
I mean, you know, get yourself someone who can do it all. I liked it all. Um, Deep cuts. What are in just to kind of put a a, a nice black lace bow on the whole goth thing? Um, <laughs> what were your kind of go to goth songs? I mean, definitely like for I mean, I'm a huge cure head. Like I religiously will go through periods where I'll spend two hours watching the cure uh, live videos. Like I do this on a regular. In fact, they're fed to me so much. And I just like, so like close to me is probably like, you know, one of my favorite like goth songs of, I don't know, like cure songs. And again, the cure, they probably hate and cringe at that term because I think they were just brilliant pop songwriters. And it, Mm -hmm. And I think when you say goth rock, that sort of like puts the look ahead of the music, you know, yeah. but they had both and they really defined like the the culture of it. But I'm a huge industrial wax tracks person. Yeah. And, What's and- your stance on the early ministry, like the with sympathy oh. era every day is Halloween era ministry? Well, I didn't know. And that was like news to me that Al Jorgensen won't play the with sympathy era music because that's just one of the greatest, you know, industrial pop records ever made. Mm -hmm. It's an iconic, like groundbreaking record. And that like bums me out. And he's such an interesting character. I've been working with a lot of artists that know him. They call him, they call them their dad. Like I've been working with a punk band called Surfboard and oh yeah, and yeah. that's such a bummer to hear that because that music's so great. But I can also like understand that I guess as an artist you're like, yeah, I don't feel the way because that's such a departure from where you know ministry yeah but I love thrill kill cult. I love the imagery and that all that stuff. It's like that really speaks to me. And I'd even say like Depeche Mode, the darkness of Depeche mm. Mode. Mm-hmm. It, makes, it has a horror and I and and to echo what you were saying Rod that and you too Grimsley that it's like <laughs> it's like horror is a outsider culture and I think that's a big attraction for for people who don't feel like they fit in I'm so excited for Kate Bush and her success with Stranger the Stranger Things soundtrack but like I'm also like we've been screaming from the mountaintops the brilliance of Kate Bush. And I'm sort of like very happy for the success and also like, no, my Kate Bush. (laughs) Well, speaking, if people want to hear more screaming from the mountaintops about Kate Bush, I do have to put in a shameless plug here that you can go on Totally 80s and listen to the two-part episode about Kate Bush that I did with Ann Powers from NPR and Ginny Lemon from RuPaul's Drag Race UK right here on Totally 80s. But yeah, she's definitely, you know, she got a whole podcast of her own, but she definitely fits into what we're talking about now. It also really says something about how out of all film media genre, like nothing connects and is amplified more as a genre than music and horror. Like Mm -hmm. I can't really think of another film genre that is so tied to music. Since we are talking about British bands, British artists, and also films, where do we stand on The Lost Boys? There was a great iconic soundtrack for that. Honestly, I know the version of People Are Strange by British post-punk band Echo and the Bunnymen, who also I would say The Killing Moon is a good Halloween song. I know that better than The Doors version. I like it better than The Doors Mm -hmm. version. What's our stance on that movie, which I feel was kind of a a predecessor, precursor to a lot of the kind of trendy vampire movies that we've had in the last 10 or so years. And also I still don't know why there was that sexy sax guy in the movie. I that's a mystery of the that's all I care about in it really. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Right. 
I feel like the last boys, like Joel Schumacher is like lot that that ushered in what 90s horror looked like. It was yes. like the precursor to all of it. And I think it also made the concept of super soundtracks, you know, outside of the score of the film, right? Mm-hmm. And it just like ushered in that era of a super huge soundtrack, blockbuster soundtrack, blockbuster movie, and into the 90s style of horror, mm-hmm. which was even more like had a meta. And I think this goes to say like how groundbreaking our outsider culture, how like in the music and the visuals, when you think about how Halloween was made and they just made it and Nightmare Living Dead. And, and a lot of these bands, when you think uh, that are attached to horror, were just like not bands made by major label, you know, mm. groups. They were they were groups that grew up and and cut their fangs in the club, as, as mm-hmm. I like to say. And I think that the Lost Boys soundtrack like started the whole genre of like huge soundtracks. Tim Capello is the sax guy, and he's hot. In that. Wait, you know who the sax? I know know nothing about the sax guy. I'm sorry, we're bearing the lead here. How do you know anything about why it seems like kind of like it doesn't go with the rest of the movie that he just shows up. And he's become like a gif or a jif. He's become a meme. Like he's like the most famous thing from the film at this point. It's sort to me that's a moment where like because where like eighties hair culture and and grunge like like there's a moment where it's like everything's right about this minus this is from like (laughs) or something over the top that we kind of missed the mark but it's like it's just like transcended and just become iconic yeah that guy opened up for tina turner i think he was just like like sort of the steve Vai of like saxophone you know Mm -hmm. what i mean sexy saxophone guy I need to Google everything he ever did. Tim Capello. Speaking of hair culture, though, fun fact that I wanted to mention is when I interviewed Kiefer Sutherland a couple of years ago when he was putting out a record, actually, he modeled his blonde peroxide mullet after Billy Idol. So it all goes back to Billy Idol. One of the greatest mullets to ever do it. Yes, absolutely. So (laughs) in fact, I I cut my hair like that. I bet. Of course you did. Of course you did. I did that mullet four years ago. So you were a little exactly. bit ahead of the time, but not as ahead of the time as Kiefer Sutherland was. I know it's tragic to be me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it is abs- it's magic to be you. Well, we're we're we could keep going, and but we're sort of running out of time. But I definitely want to take advantage, Rod, of this lightning round. So you, the whole time we've been talking, you have had a stack of of soundtracks and scores. Yeah, just this just is out like, of frame. Yeah, this is uh, a fractional. I have like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of horror movie scores over there. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Amazing. And I just picked out a few of my favorites that are like specifically 80s because I could go on about like all the ones from the 70s, which I completely adore. Uh, but I'll give you a little speed run. Uh, we have Lost Boys, obviously, which you just discussed. April Fool's Day, which we've discussed, which is Charles Bernstein, amazing. Return of the Living Dead, which we've discussed. Friday the 13th, part three. An absolutely shocking film. I hate the film. Possibly my least favorite in the franchise, but has a disco version of the theme tune, which I think is camp and fabulous. Yeah. Um, Big Trouble in Little China, which is iconic. Kim Cattrall, nonsense. But the theme tune by Coup de Ville is absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Okay, shout out to the John Carpenter title track as well, which is one yes. of my favorite songs. It's absolutely amazing. <laughs> um, Halloween 3, which is my favorite of the franchise. 
and with the dream or day still Halloween, Halloween, Halloween to the tune of London Bridge. Copyright doesn't exist, apparently. <laughs> um, David Bowie's overly bulged groinal area in Labyrinth with some fantastic songs. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my f- personal favorites, Tourist Trap. Do you know Tourist Trap? No. Just watched it again. Oh my God. It's, <laughs> I'm obsessed with this film. I'm fully obsessed with this film. The soundtrack is amazing. It's by Pino Donaggio, who also did all the Brian De Palma films and also um, did, uh, oh God, what else? A, a million amazing things. Phenomena, which is my favorite uh, of the Argento films. Yes, Insane mine too. The soundtrack. Do you like it? it? I, that's my favorite Argento as well. It's amazing. Wow. So yeah, the I other day, know. you're going to die. The other day, oh. I, there was a fly in my apartment and I held out my hand and the flight jumped on my hand and sat there looking at me. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> died. You know what you are. I you died. Are. Um, Silent Night, Deadly Night, which is my favorite Christmas horror with incredible original songs, including Santa's Watching. Santa's Watching, Santa's Watching, <laughs> Santa's Creeping. Fabulous. Amazing. Chopping Mall, one of the best soundtracks ever, ever, sure. ever, ever. Little Shop of Horrors, best horror musical ever. Well, you know, debatable, but in the scheme of the 80s. No, it is. It music. is. It is. And The Monster Squad, because it has a phenomenal Michael Cimbello track called Rock Until You Drop, which is almost as good as Maniac. Wow. Very Ooh, cool. I, I just wanted to talk about Maniac. Ah, Bring it on. Yeah. Let's let's do that. And then I have one more honorable mention that's not movie related, but I just think needs to be. But I, I'm curious about your thoughts on Maniac. I'm a big I wouldn't put Flashdance necessarily in a Halloween conversation, but I'm a huge Flashdance fan. I love this like spooky factoid that Maniac was originally written for the movie, which Maniac, is a yeah. feminist horror. Like it, it's in like feminist rhetoric classes. Uh, and it's a like a horror, um, you know, canon movie, not canon films, but it's in the canon of horror. Um, the early 80s movie Maniac. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Yes. And it was originally written for Maniac. It's wild when, when you you're like, of course, when you hear that fact, but you're like, I can't believe that it ended up in a film, which is like so far away from what maniac is that it's amazing that it would work perfectly in both like yes. crazy <laughs> yeah right the, crazy. when you think cuz when you think about the lyrics you're like yes and he, and he changed one line to fit flash dance and it any in this songwriter was uh was really um speculating as well on the films that were kind they, there was like a race for the title track you know, mm-hmm. and and on it, honestly, in that era, this is early 80s, mid 80s, you would write at because I'm a songwriter and producer as well. You would write a song as the title of the, the song of the, the movie. Right. So he was speculating on that. And someone was like, you know, there's another movie that's that's being made called Flashdance. This might work well for that. And even though I love Maniac, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Maniac the movie and Maniac the song, obviously Flashdance was the bigger, the better choice. The better, the better placement. But what was the line he changed? Was it like, instead of she's a maniac on the floor, it was like, she's a maniac with yeah, a and knife. It, <laughs> yeah, and, it, and then it right outside your door. Ooh. Mm. Does this yeah. exist? Like, does the alternate take exist somewhere? Yes, it does. Oh, it does. Oh my God. And yeah, exactly. And I would die to get it. And I will. Oh my God. That is, <laughs> that is the most and fun. And I will. 
Yeah, that couldn't right? be a move. That could be a movie in itself. She'll kill for the rights to Maniac. She's a maniac. <laughs> <laughs> maniac two. Maniac two. Electric Boogaloo. This time it's personal. This time it's personal. Deep <laughs> well, uh, I mean, my God, I don't know how to top that, but I did say I have an honorable mention, so I do want to mention that, even though. Technically, it came out in 1977, but I want to mention Psycho Killer, which was the debut single by one of the 1980s most iconic bands, which was Talking Heads, even though it did not come out. It came out three years before the 80s, but it's like a truly scary song because I didn't realize it at the time when I first heard it, but it was not only written, sort of inspired by Alice Cooper, who we've mentioned, it was sort of meant to be in the vein of the shock rock he was doing at the time. And I found out later that Ice-T and Body Count kind of used as inspiration in the 90s for cop killer. So obviously it's like a timeless, gruesome classic, but it, you know, goes into the mind of a serial killer, a deranged murderer. So like, I feel it belongs on this list. And I want to mention that Talking Heads recently celebrated the 45th anniversary of their debut album, Talking Heads 77. And they launched their official online store at talkingheadsofficial.com. And we here at Totally 80s have an exclusive discount for our listeners to celebrate the band this Halloween. Just enter the code PSYCHO, which I think you guys can remember, when you check out and you'll get 20% off anything in the store, like t-shirts, hoodies, theme merch. It's the perfect Halloween gift or the perfect gift all year round, as was this chat. What a way to celebrate Halloween, you guys. It was amazing. Fabulous. So before I let you go, because really this chat, I don't want to end. It was a true nightmare come true. But what <laughs> what do you guys have going on? You got stuff with Lovecraft. I know, Rod, you are working on film stuff or, or perhaps other music coming out. What do you guys have going on? Shameless plug time. I already did my couple of my own shameless plugs. I just did a documentary movie score which is nothing to do with horror well it's it's about the international mail catalog Ooh. which does have its share of horror with like the real life aids <laughs> disaster okay. um you know timeline so there's like real life horror involved but um that was cool to do my first music score and the the cast and crew have been amazing for that i did a short film short horror film called the beast the score for that hopefully that comes out next year and i have done a fake horror soundtrack as well Ooh. i was a little bit bored during quarantine so i started writing a film script based on the jala films that i love called living memory and i am releasing that for Bandcamp friday the score which i've made when i was drunk on gin in the middle of the day for most of 2020 <laughs> i cannot wait to hear that that and what is the soundtrack this fake soundtrack called it's called living memory Living and that's amazing. I cannot mm. wait to hear that. And and what is Lovecraft up to? Well, Lovecraft, we just dropped our fourth album. This year we did an immersive album um, mixed in Dolby Atmos, and we pushed the technology in a way that has never been pushed before. So we collaborated this year with the legendary horror film composer Christopher Young. He um scored the what is considered, although that's debatable, the scariest movie of all time, Sinister, and Drag Me to Hell. He also did Hellraiser, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. His CV is staggering. So it was huge. We did it at the Dolby Theater. It was an immersive event. Everyone wow. freaked out. We are also running all the music and the Block Party DJ event at Shacktoberfest in Long Beach, California. Amazing. Come down and party with our skeleton, Sam. And... Aside from that, this is huge spooky news for the spooky community. Our song Skeleton Sam was used in Hocus Pocus 2 and is currently 
the number 10 most Shazam song in America, which has just been like huge. Oh my God. That's so, amazing. Also, Hocus Pocus 2 is fucking fantastic. Yes, like, it it's really so, is. It's it so really fun. Is. It's so yes. much fun. Anybody oh that God. doesn't like it, I'm like, what the fuck did you think was going to happen? <laughs> like when people didn't like the new like Jurassic World Dominion, I'm like, what did you expect? You have seen the franchise. There is yeah. no shock. Hocus Pocus 2 is exactly the following from Hocus Pocus. What did you expect? Shut up and have fun. And the soundtrack <laughs> is amazing. Well done. I'm well, so happy for you. I'm going to watch it again tonight. Well, yeah. I'm definitely going to congratulations and congratulations to all everything you guys got going on. I have such a long watch list. Hocus Pocus 2 is going to have to wait because I need to see Chopping Mall and all of these other films. What mm-hmm. were some of the, uh, there's so many, but I mean, this was, like I said, this discussion was a real nightmare come true. So thank you guys. A special thanks to our grisly guest today, the mistress of the dark herself, Elvira. Oh. And of course, Bright Light, Bright Light, and Deep Cuts, a.k.a. MNDR. And I'm Lindsay Parker, a.k.a. Grimsy Darker. And I want to thank you all for listening to this spooky conversation. Remember to give Totally 80s a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. And I'll catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.